0: it's a mailbag monday and some of y'all asked about pitch clocks and ending games on a violation as somebody who watched a lot of minor league baseball last year it's gonna be fine let's talk about it you are locked on mlb prospects part of the locked on podcast network your team every day Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen. Every single day, we are part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it is your team every day. And Monday is your show on Locked On MLB Prospects, because we're answering your questions. Uh, our our Discord, which if you want to join, link is in the episode description. Link is in the show notes. Tons of baseball fans talking all things sports. Our Discord kind of blew up on Saturday because there was a lot of conversation around the Red Sox-Braves spring training game. To kind of fill you in on what happened. In this game, ninth inning, tied 6-6, six to six, two outs, bases loaded, Braves prospect Cal Conley had an automatic third strike called on him for not being set in the box with the pitch clock at eight seconds, and so you know a lot of people are are, are frustrated about this. A lot of people are mad about this. A lot of, there's a lot of conversation about this could potentially ruin baseball and things like that. Let's let's back up a little bit. We've seen the pitch clock in action at the minor league level. Let me explain to you how it works and why you probably don't actually have to worry about it that much. So. The the rule here is pitchers have 15 seconds from when they receive the ball back from the catcher uh, to begin their delivery if there are no runners on base. Uh, If there are runners on base, they have 20 seconds from when they receive the ball back from the catcher to have begun their delivery. Now, batters are awarded a ball if the clock has expired, and the and the pitcher has not done that. Batters are awarded a strike if they are not set in the box and alert to the pitcher by the time the clock reaches eight seconds. And this was the issue that came up in the Red Sox Braves game. So uh, Conley said after the game he noticed the catcher was standing and looking at his wristband. He was Conley was in the box, but he was looking at the catcher who was standing and looking at his wristband Uh, and so the umpire called something conley started jogging to first base thinking it was a ball the clock must have expired and they called him and so instead of a walk off walk it was a game ending tying strikeout because you don't go to extras in spring training according to the specific rules of of this whole thing. The catcher does not have to be prepared to receive a pitch at eight seconds. The batter has to be uh, l- like, in the box looking at the pitcher ready to bat within eight seconds. The, kitch- the catcher can be standing, the catcher can be crouching, can be kneeling, whatever it might be. And MLB put out a statement Saturday afternoon or evening, in essence confirming that was the correct call. Now, one... We've heard reports from minor leaguers that this is being called a little stricter than it was last year in the minors. And part of that is because they're trying to get the major leaguers used to this rule. So it is a point of emphasis right now. Uh, But this is, here's the big thing to think about when it comes to pitch clock in the major leagues. So there was 19 games for spring training between Friday and Saturday. Small sample size, I know. Stick with me here. Uh, so, of those 19 games, you had 34 violations of the pitch clock. Most of those, I think if not all, were on hitters, not on pitchers. So, that comes out to just under 1.8 per game. Last year, the first week in the minors that you had the pitch clock in place, the average per game in the minors was about 1.73 violations per game, so you're tracking exactly where the minor leagues were last year. Now in the minor leagues, that steadily dropped for about four weeks, and then that leveled off to under one a game after about four weeks. So this is something where, as as frustrating as that was, right to have a game end in a uh, a Bases loaded, strikeout to tie a spring training game. You want that to happen, right? You would rather it happen now than happen in the regular season. This is just like everything else where it is a new rule. They are emphasizing the rule and probably overdoing the rule a bit just to get everybody used to it. It's very similar to when you initially put in the crackdown on spider tack and sticky stuff and the checks on pitchers coming off the mound were a lot more stringent in that season than they were by the end of the year when it was more of a cursory thing unless you were Buck Showalter and you were asking somebody to go check the pitcher's ears on the mound so this is something where they're over enforcing it now because you have a lot of MLB veterans including guys who have been playing in the major leagues for 20 years who have not had Max Scherzer hasn't gone to the minors in years He's not had to deal with this. So for the benefit of guys like him, they are overemphasizing this now so that it's not as big of a deal later during the season. The last thing MLB wants is an actual game that, and I hate to do this, but an actual game that legitimately matters. Because a spring training game in the end, the result does not matter. Uh, The last thing MLB wants is a game that actually matters to be decided in, in this fashion. And so the thought process is by overemphasizing the pitch clock to the major leaguers now, you can get them accustomed to it. It's always easier to come in strict and then back off a bit than to come in too lax and have to be stricter about it partway through the year. So don't worry about it. In the minor leagues, we saw the big benefit of the pitch clock being uh, the time of games dropped by... you know, half an hour. We had a show last year where we talked about there were games that were finishing in under two hours sometimes. I mean, just drop the time of the game significantly. I don't think you're going to see as much of a reduction in game times at the Major League level as you did in the minors, simply because of the greater emphasis on advertising and things like that when it comes to Major League games. But you are going to see the games be shorter and that is going to be, believe it or not, a good thing. The other unique side effect that we're probably not thinking about is it's really going to mess up some of the walk-up songs because some of these entrances uh, are going to have to be sped up a lot so that the hitter can be in the box ready to go you you have to go from the on-deck circle directly into the box rather quickly so we're not going to get as much for those uh, walk-up songs as we used to and I have no idea what Evan Diaz is going to do with the Mets Uh, I don't think you have time to even get to the trumpet part in that song, never mind legitimately get through the trumpet part in that song. In just a minute, we had a question in our Discord about non-roster invitees who have a really good chance of making the roster. Some guys that we maybe haven't talked about yet, but first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Built Bar. Spring training games are going on right now. If you're like me, you're planning a trip to either Florida or Arizona to go watch some of these games, see your team, see a bunch of prospects. I'm going to Florida in, I think, two weeks. We'll be there just under a full week. I already have a bunch of things planned with different teams, different prospects, things like that. We are driving, and so um, one of the big things you do when you cast up your car, everybody goes inside and buys a bunch of snacks, right? Everybody gets candy and chips crackers, all this stuff that's not very healthy for you and you just munch on junk food all the way during your trip. Instead, think about getting some built Bars. One, built Bars are healthy but, but tasty. All built Bars are 100% real chocolate and so it kind of hits that same note, that flavor note of a candy bar. The flavors themselves are fantastic. Churro, peanut butter brownie, coconut almond, cookies and cream, Brownie batter, lots of different uh, flavors to hit whatever your favorite candy bar is. There's probably something in uh, with Built Bar that will hit those same notes for you. But then they're good for you, and they keep you full. 130 calories, four grams of sugar, which is very, very much lower than a candy bar would be, but 17 grams of protein. The protein's what keeps you full, keeps you from needing to uh, to munch on food out of hunger on the drive you may munch on on food because you're bored and if that's the case we've got a locked on locked on uh, podcast for every major league team out there so go find go check out your your team's first week opponent you know maybe you're a braves fan and you're facing off with somebody else in week one go listen to that show learn more about it if you run out of built bars on your trip you can swing by your local walmart or sam's club and pick more up. Walmart, go to the pharmacy section. Uh, four-bar box of cookies and cream of double chocolate or coconut puff. Or if you're near a Sam's, go in and get a 13-bar box of brownie batter or churro. Everything else, all your standard stocking up, happens at Built.com. Okay, so question that came up in our Discord was about non-roster invitees who maybe we're not talking about that might make the roster make an impact in 2020. Uh, 23. There's a couple different types of NRIs and we we covered this a little bit last week in a show but some of your non-roster invitees are going to be depth pieces veterans who are on minor league deals so non-guaranteed deals non-major league deals who are trying to make the team as a depth piece. A good example is on just about every single team you always have a couple relievers who are there as uh, minor league deals trying to make the team Look at the Dodgers. outfielder Jason Hayward was released by the Cubs. Um, early on the contract, has done a lot of work offensively trying to fix his swing. He's very close friends with Freddie Freeman. They came up in the Brave system together. And so he is in Dodgers camp trying to make the team. So that's one type of NRI. Uh, we talked last week about those guys that are on the team or they're part of spring training. Because they're going to be the future and you want them to be around all of the uh, the big name MLB players. Your Jackson Holiday and things like that. Uh, but some of the guys, some of these prospects are there legitimately, they have a chance to make the roster. They're not, the reason they're non-roster invitees is because they're not on the 40-man roster. Uh, Jordan Walker, not on the 40-man roster for for the Cardinals. Andrew Painter, not on the 40-man roster for the Phillies, uh, was was doing... Live BP over the weekend and gave up an absolute bomb to Kyle Schwarber. I think we tweeted that link out. It's uh, it's uh, welcome to the show, pal. But a couple guys that we haven't discussed yet that I think could have an impact if they make the team. Interesting ones for me, and this this ties back to last week with some of the injury discussion we had, is Nick Lofton for the Royals. So uh, played at Baylor, 2020 first round supplemental, the 32nd overall pick, signed for about three million dollars. Uh, so he has been. He did not play in 2020, obviously there was no minor league season. I don't think he was at the alternate side either. So 21 and 22, uh, he he's played first base. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's played second base. He's played shortstop. He's played third base. He's also played center field. He's played left field. College, he was pretty much just a shortstop. Last year, he spent most of his time between A AA and AAA in center field. And so I think his path to making the roster, one, is helped by the fact that you're not going to have Drew Waters. Now, remember, we talked about he, had, he, he has an oblique strain. You're going to miss a couple. He's going to miss a couple weeks. I think it was six to eight weeks or so. And so, one, there's an avenue for him to make the team there. I feel like it's more likely that he'll make it over like a Tyler Gentry simply because he can play both infield and outfield. Uh, what he did last year, it, if he doesn't make it, you'll see why when I give you these stats from what he did last year. So in A Northwest Arkansas, 90 games, 270, 354, 421, 12 home runs, 29 extra base, no, I can't count, 30 extra base hits, 45 walks to 57 strikeouts, 24, 28 on stolen bases. Good offensive year. He got 38 games in AAA Omaha, the Storm Chasers, the last month and a half of the season. 216, 280, 359 over those 38 games. 5 home runs, 12 extra base hits, 10 walks to 41 strikeouts, and 5 of 7 on stolen bases. Again, if Nick Lofton does not make the Royals out of spring training... It's because of that struggle when he went to Triple A. The strikeout rate went from just under thirteen percent to just under twenty-five percent. The walk rate dropped from almost eleven percent down to about six percent. So, for a guy that's not a like a naturally gifted hitter, right? We're looking at an average, uh, you know, more of a gap than power game. He can hit, uh, you know, he can he can hit extra base hits from gap to gap he's not using the full field he doesn't he has below average power it's something where his value is making contact getting on base and the defensive versatility because uh he's got he's got above average speed. So he's got a good range he's got above average arm so again he can play he can play second he can play third he can play short he can play both left field and center field he could play right if you needed him to, but most of his time in the outfield has been center and left, and so it's just a matter of unfamiliar reads and routes and things like that. The arm is good enough to do it, but it's just not having to take that read off the ball. So if he doesn't make it, it's going to be because they want him to work on the plate discipline at AAA to bring the strikeout rate back down to the, the, his his natural kind of 13 to 15% level, And the walk rate up to double digits again. Another guy that you may see making his team out of spring training is Justin Durden of the Astros. 2020 undrafted free agent, uh, started uh, out of southeastern Missouri State, started off at East Carolina. And another one of those guys that if he doesn't necessarily make it in 2023 for opening day, it's because you can point back to what he did after promotion last year. Started the year off in A Corpus Christ, 92 games, right? 324, 411, 616. We talk about the 300, 400, 500 slash line to be a dude. He had 300, 400, 600. 20 home runs, 57 extra base hits in 92 games. 41 walks to 94 strikeouts, 7-9 on stolen bases. Gets a promotion for the last month plus to Triple uh, A Sugarland, the Space Cowboys. 32 games, 242, 305, 398. Four home runs, 12 extra base hits, 10 walks to 40 strikeouts, and five assists six on stolen bases. So, above average speed, above average arm, he can play anywhere in the outfield. Uh, center field, he could do it. He's probably average in center, would be above average in a corner. Uh, and the speed is useful. The issue here is... And you saw it come up when he went to Triple AAA Sugarland. He's prone sometimes to expand the zone, kind of loses uh, the, the, the whole, I, my game is consistently hitting qual- like quality contact and elevating the ball. That's his game, right? The hit tool is probably average, if not a little bit below, but his whole thing is, I'm going to make solid contact, put the ball in play, and give myself a chance, Fly balls are more valuable than ground balls. Line drives are more valuable than fly balls. He hits a lot of line drives and fly balls. and and But the issue is, again, when he expands the zone, he sometimes he's, he ends up getting suboptimal contact. And a lot of it's he's aggressive early in the count. And if he's not on whatever pitch is coming, he's now behind. So if he doesn't make the team out of spring training, it's because they want him to go back to Sugar Land and refine that. But to me, he feels like a very useful piece to have at the major league level. You can plug him into all three spots. Obviously, you're not stuck with using Jordan Alvarez in the outfield every day. If you have somebody like him who you feel comfortable with can play defense, again, average in center field, probably above average at a corner. So two guys I'm watching this spring to see how they do and see if they can make the team. From what I understand, Durden had a good weekend. So want to see if they can make the team out of spring. In just a minute, we've got a question about advanced hitting statistics that end up being predictors and then some explanation of some of the scouting terms that we use when talking about hitters. We'll get to that next on Locked on MLB Prospects. And we are back. So this comes out of a conversation that we had in the Discord about trying to identify breakout players in fantasy baseball, And when you're evaluating prospects, how to understand better than just looking at like batting average or stuff to figure out how guys are performing and who you can predict to see improvement. There's a couple things that I like to look at. uh, A couple stats and things like that. Weighted on base average to me is a very useful statistic. Uh, And the issue with a lot of these expected stats that you see on Statcast and things like that is they were never designed to be predictive they were designed to be descriptive they were designed to explain the context around a player's season weighted on base average to me the value of weighted on base average is it adjusts for the type of hits that you get because obviously some hits are more valuable than others Like we want guys to get on base. We want hits, right? But a double is more valuable than a single. A triple is more valuable than a double. A home run is more valuable than all of those. And so weighted on base average is a good way to measure a player's run production potential because it looks at the ability of them to get quantity of contact and gives you a way to put into it the quality of that contact as far as the actual production of what it does on the field so uh, this is again a good way to to kind of estimate a player's run production capability because again the whole goal here is we want to score runs we don't care how we do it we just want to score runs so uh, the league average weighted on base average is 320. And the way that this changes, or the way that your run production changes on this, when you add about 20 points to your weighted on-base average, that translates over 600 plate attempts in a season to about 10 additional runs. So one, that shows you just how slim the margin is to be better than average in Major League Baseball. But then two, you can look at that if a guy is consistently hitting... Let's say he comes out, his weighted on base average is 340 versus 320. Over a full season, that guy is going to be responsible for 20 more runs scored on your team than a prospect who has a 320. So there you go. Uh, The other thing is a lot of people like to look at quality of contact stats. And this is something that I've recently kind of had a renaissance. I used to be really big into hard hit rate, um i was looking at exit velos and i still we still talk about exit velos on the show because everybody's familiar with it and it's just a it's a nice easy publicly available metric to say how hard somebody hits a ball and and just to clarify hard hit rate is contact at 95 miles an hour or higher just flat it doesn't matter how you do it just contact at 95 miles an hour or higher expressed as a percentage is hard hit rate but There's Fangraphs that did some research recently, did the stats on everything. And when you're looking at certain stats, quantity matters more than quality. So for instance, batting average. As much as I love hard hit percentage and sweet spot percentage, there is a much larger correlation for batting average if you look at strikeout rate. The correlation between uh, sweet spot rate and batting average is 0.04, which if you remember statistics, the closer to zero this number is, the less predictive it is. The closer to one it is, the more predictive it is. The correlation between strikeout rate and batting average is 0.21. And the idea here is, uh, if we've all heard about Babbitt luck, batting average on balls in play, how that can fluctuate. The best way to have a higher batting average is is to have more opportunities to get a hit by putting more balls into play so that is why strikeout rate is more predictive of batting average than hard hit rate sweet spot rate things like that now for power this is where i do i like barrel percentage and some of the stats bear this out rather than looking at exit below max or 90th percentile or hard hit percentage look at barrel percentage so Barrel percentage is a little more context to hard hit rate. Hard hit rate is, again, 95 miles an hour or ho- or harder contact. That's it. There's no other stuff in that. Barrel rate combines ve- like the, the exit velocity and the launch angle of the pitch. So a barrel is defined at a ball 98 miles an hour or harder. We'll get to the or harder in a second. 98 miles an hour at a 26 to 30 degree launch angle. That is the optimal angle, that is the optimal combination of angle and velocity to get a home run. Now, every one mile an hour you increase off of 98 miles an hour, you widen the angle in both directions. So a 99 mile an hour pitch, instead of being 26 to 30 to qualify as a barrel, can be 25 to 31 to qualify as a barrel. That continues all the way till you get to 116 miles an hour, and 116 miles an hour and up, it's eight degrees to 50 degrees. Because if you smash a ball at 116 miles an hour, even if you hit that thing at eight at eight degrees, there's a good chance it might go out. But barrel percentage is much more predictive of power and home run production than just looking at the exit velo just looking at a hard hit percentage. the issue is for people like me who don't have access to reliable access to that minor league data set is barrel percentage is not commonly shared for prospects. it's available on statcast for major leaguers. we don't always have that for prospects. so a lot of what I end up giving you is exit velo, hard hit, things like that. Not a perfect world. Ideally, we'd have all this stuff publicly available. A stat cash page for the minor leagues. We're just not quite there yet. Got another question in the Discord about some of the stuff that that we talk about when it comes to hitting uh, like an arm bar. What's an arm bar? What's a bat rap? And so I'm going to try to do this in an audio format, mindful of 90% of the listeners of the show are on audio, not on video on YouTube. So an arm bar. Think about when you're watching somebody swing, Right. When they when you when that that front arm, the arm that is attached to the shoulder facing the pitcher, when that arm becomes extended and locked at the beginning of the swing, as you start to move, if that arm extends and locks, mm-hmm. that is an arm bar. Now, traditionally, that was always a bad thing. There are hitters that you will see that have good offensive production that have that front arm locked because it ultimately it doesn't come down to elbow being locked or not, it comes down to where are your hands in relation to your body during the swing. If you think about it, you are you are keeping the bat back, you are rotating through your torso, you're turning your hips and firing through your hips, and all of that kinetic force comes through your torso, through your arms and hands, into the bat. And so the bigger... Thing here is not necessarily is the elbow locked but are the hands in close to the body or are the hands extended the hands being close into the body makes it easier think about when you watch a figure skater do the spin they pull their arms in and they spin faster same idea your hands being closer into the body one helps you just catch those inside fastballs but two makes it easier for you to get that rotational power into the swing so The arm bar by itself isn't necessarily bad, but where the hands end up in relation to the body, that's what actually matters. Same thing with the bat wrap. The bat wrap is when the barrel of the bat, in essence, ends up behind the player's head versus up in the air behind them. The thought process here, same thing. When the bat is completely behind your head versus your back shoulder, there's a longer path. For the, ball or for the bat to, to move through to get into the zone. Uh, again, not necessarily as concerning about where the bat itself is as where the hands are. Are the hands in a position where you can quickly get them into your body and rotate it through? So just having a bat wrap or just having an arm bar isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's pictures of plenty of legendary hitters who have bat wraps or arm bars or both and succeed, it's biomechanically, can you get the, the bat into the zone quick enough and can you keep it in the zone long enough and can you generate the power, can you optimize the amount of power transferring from your core, from your legs, uh, through your arms into the bat. If you have questions for the show, uh, I'm on Twitter at Crossy Baseball, show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us, LockedOnMovieProspects at, at gmail.com or again, Drop your questions into the Locked on MLB Prospects Discord. Link is in the episode description. Link is in the show notes. That's the first place we go for questions on Mondays. It's going to be a fantastic week this week. Until tomorrow's show, this has been Locked on MLB Prospects.